Welcome back to the WFO Live podcast. In this episode, we start a series interviewing coaches. Now, many think of coaching as sport, and that is, of course, the context we're going to use today in our interview. But coaching can also be coaching in business. It can be life coaching. A coach is anyone who has something valuable to teach us or some ethic or technique that they can impart upon us to make our lives better or to make us more effective at what we do. This episode is a great way to start, and I'm, it was a very fun interview with a good friend of mine named Sammy Giraldo. Sammy has an A license with, uh, as a soccer coach with the U.S. National Program. He is currently a professional soccer trainer and a program director for the Tennessee State Soccer Association. It was a great interview. There are tons of pearls. So if you think this is about sport, you're right. But it is not just about sport. There are things, if you listen to this interview, this will help you in business and in life. And if you're a parent or a player that thinks they want to move on to the next level, or if you're a coach that's trying to build culture and structure and success into their sport program, do not miss this entire interview with Sammy Giraldo. And now, the bumper music. Welcome to the WFO Life Podcast. Buckle up for interviews, insights, and practical discussions, and the occasional intellectual oddity, all designed to help you master self, master craft, and accomplish any life mission. Good evening, folks. Welcome back to the WFO Live podcast. As always, Dr. William Curtis and my co-host, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Story, are in the house, and we have a special interview today that is part of a series of interviews that we have, we're excited about, where we are going to be reaching out to coaches, um, people with coaching background that have you know various levels of experience. Uh, and we are going to reach out to them for various reasons. Uh, this was kind of my brainchild uh, in a sense that I wanted to, I think coaches are mentors and they are people who can not only teach us about a subject matter, such as a sport, if you will, but they can also teach us about how to live our lives better, how to compete in the, in the real world, so to speak. And today we have a close friend of mine and a uh, man, what an excellent way to start out. We have uh, a good friend of mine named Sammy Giraldo. Welcome to the WFO Life Podcast, Sammy. Awesome, Bill. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really exciting to be here and really exciting to get a chance to just kind of chat with you and Chris today. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, welcome, Sammy. So a little bit of background here. Sammy and I are old friends. Uh, we, I guess, first met each other back when my oldest daughter, I was coaching a team when you guys were, you and your brother, and I should I should mention, we have had Sebastian Geraldo on multiple times. He's probably one of the leading guests on our show, uh, and Sebastian is your younger brother. Oh, man, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy <laughs> to think about it. Uh, yeah, it's been, I think, maybe almost 10 years we've known each other, Bill, actually, and yeah, my brother, 
Uh, he's my younger brother. He's uh, he's done this professionally for probably 12 years now. And uh, the interesting thing is that he really he was the one that all along wanted to go into soccer professionally. Uh, I kind of took a different route academia-wise and did a lot of different things, but always stayed connected to the game. Uh, but I was actually the one that convinced him to go to Corpus, and uh, which led us to our paths crossing, uh, I think around, honestly, 2010. So, man, time flies. Yeah, it does. And and so how we met as my oldest daughter, I was coaching a youth level team. I think they were 12 years old or something like that. And you guys were kind of new to town. I could see that what you guys were trying to do as a coach, uh, coaching uh, and, and training uh, program was you were trying to bring high level cutting edge, you know, education uh, to the sport of soccer in our area. And and so that's kind of what drew me to you guys. And we clicked and, and, and ultimately ended up, you know, training together for many years there. But I want to back up. Let's let's back up because, you know, a lot of folks, I know you and for me, this is a really, you know, uh, kind of an easy conversation because we're old friends. But I want to back up and tell me about where you grew up and a little bit about your background. Yeah, man. So um, I guess, Really, the most important thing to begin with is I'm Colombian. Uh, I came to this U to the U.S. when I was about four years old, um, and I obviously come from a soccer culture, which uh, for our conversation I think it's extremely important. But you know, I'm an immigrant, man. I'm an immigrant story. Um, came here for the American dream. My father and my mother. Uh, if anybody has watched Narcos, uh, that was the reality. Most Colombians were pretty much living in the '80s and. You know, they made a difficult decision, uh, which I, to this day, admire them, really. Uh, early 20s uh, with two young kids and basically decided, you know, we're going to go for a better life, uh, better chances at education, and basically decided to leave everybody behind. And, uh, you know, obviously, I think it's a great decision. Um, I straddle two worlds. You know, I consider myself American and Colombian, um, two cultures, two worlds. But I feel really blessed that I live in this country and that I get to impact it. But uh, it's really owed to them. And uh, I think my journey, you know, my journey really quickly has taken me to Michigan, lived in East Lansing as a little kid, Vermont, and then eventually to Texas, which I called home for many years and uh, really led me down the path of eventually uh, working professionally in soccer in a lot of different ways but my journey really is an immigrant story and it is kind of the typical american dream story so uh that's always something exciting for me to share yeah one thing sammy that uh i want to touch on that because i think it'll tie into uh the interview is um did that immigrant background or upbringing did that um I guess, set the tone in your uh, childhood, set the culture, uh, if you will, for your house? Or did your parents try to, you know, just assimilate quickly? How how much was that a part of your upbringing and the culture yeah. in your house? No, man, I, I think that's really an awesome question. Um, you know, like I said, I, I, to this day, straddle two worlds. It's just the reality. Um, my parents, I think, did an excellent job of teaching me what it is to be Colombian but also uh, respecting the opportunities and all the beauty that this this country has to offer. So, uh, you know, I would say uh, we assimilated in the sense that, you know, they made a decision that they wanted to come be a part of this country and, you know, be mm -hmm. productive members. But at the same time, I've never lost my roots. And I think to this day, 
that is probably one of the things that drives me in terms of my decision making and hopefully opening up more opportunities for athletes, which is what I do now professionally. So uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's beautifully said, because I think, you know, too often, um, you know, maybe I can see how families would come here and be like, hey, you know, we're going to cut the cord on, you know, who we were before. We're going to just go and become Americans. And, you know, obviously it's good to learn the language, which you have. And uh, But I think what you said is powerful because, you know, cutting that you know, part of you, that culture, that tie, you know, to where you were born, you know, sometimes can be a detriment. So I think that's cool that, you know, your parents obviously wanted to, you know, uh, accept everything America had to offer, but also, you know, bring the good parts of your culture with you. So that that's, I look forward to hearing more about yeah. that in your story. Yeah, man. And honestly, the, the reality is, I think, uh, you know, with everything going on in the world today, uh, our story is maybe even more relevant and just sure. to be straight about it, it's helped me connect in the coaching world to athletes and coaches alike because the diversity in backgrounds is unlimited. So, yeah, it, it, awesome. I think it just adds another dimension. Thanks for that. Two big themes that I know about the Geraldo family because I'm good friends with your father and your mother and the whole family. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, but maybe explore that a little bit more. Education's a huge theme for your family. Oh, man. Uh, very, you know, these yeah. are your your parents, very well-educated, professional, and in the midst of, like you said, the narco situation in Colombia, they had to uproot and then come and plug in as professional, you know, to our country. But talk about education, what that means to your family. Yeah, yeah, Bill. Um, you know, my, my father in particular is a PhD. Uh, he came to this country, you know, first from the University of Vermont to get his master's and then Michigan State University, go Spartans, uh, to get his, <laughs> to get his PhD, diehard Spartan to this day, by the way. So, uh, that, that is really my team to the death. Uh, but yeah, and, and my mom, you know, uh, I give her a lot of credit because while he was working that, she really set the tone for what was expected of us academically. And, you know, I think from day one, uh, we saw the work ethic in both of them and the sacrifices. And me and my brother understood that, you know, part of our job was simply, you know, uh, staying in a straight and narrow lane and making sure we become productive members. But above all else, they gave us the tools to do whatever we wanted. Uh, it was never, you know, you have to be a lawyer, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a businessman. It's really how can we support you in what you can do. And I think nowadays, I really, me and my brother really try to impart that into our athletes and really help them understand that athletics is great, but you're going to be more successful if you really uh, put your time and effort into academics. So really both worlds and all credit due to my parents really on that. Yeah, impressive people. The whole your whole family very impressive, and and um, uh, you know just you've been a mentor to so many younger players. I mean, we we've coached the you know players together for years, and uh, I know that that attitude rubs off on them. A lot of the people that we've coached, a lot of the young players are very good athletes, but they're also very good students as well. And I know to some extent that's because of you know what what you guys are imparting and, and what your parents imparted on you guys. Tell me now the other big thing about the Geraldo family and, and you and your brother uh, is the is soccer. Yep. And and you know we're going to get into your soccer story and everything, but tell us about soccer in Colombia. Yeah. And then also how that sport and it, sport generally and soccer means to you and your family at this point. 
Yeah, so uh, I, I think the, the best way I can encompass this is really with a cool little story that I have just to really kind of get the message across of culturally how important soccer is and really how important it is to me and my family. And uh, it, it showcases a little bit of the difference uh, of how that really needs to change for us as a country here in the U.S. to get to that point. So um, 1990, uh, World Cup was in Italy. And, you know, we were already living here at the time. Uh, but we would go back to Colombia to visit from time to time. So uh, it was usually my mother, my brother, and myself. And my father was getting his Ph.D. at the time. So he, he usually stayed here in the U.S. So 1990, uh, it was the first time Colombia had made the World Cup since, I believe, the 60s. So it had been decades. Um, it's the, it was the team of Valderrama, the team of Iguita. Um, right. It's what's considered the golden age, really, uh, the, the kind of golden age of soccer in the 90s. And look, it was the World Cup. It was the third game of the first round. Uh, we were playing of eventual champions, Germany. And we had to win the game. We had to win the game to go on. We hadn't been to a World Cup, but we obviously hadn't qualified to a second round. Um, and Colombia was playing awesome. We had to beat, we had to tie Germany actually um, to be able to qualify to the second round. And we were playing an awesome game. I was 10 years old. Uh, the whole family was kind of huddled around the TV. And I think what most people here in the U.S. don't realize is that really, especially in Latin America, Europe, if a major game is going on, I mean, you could go to a city of 4 million people like Bogota, there's literally nobody on the street. So there was nobody on the streets of Colombia. And I'm a 10-year-old kid, excited, huddled in a room. And Colombia's playing like the game of their life, right? And it's tied 0-0. It's getting close to the end of the game. You know, we'll qualify. And Germany sticks a goal to us. I think, in, I believe it was in the 87th, 88th minute. Bill... Chris, I can't Ugh. tell you guys, uh, as a 10-year-old oh kid, God. it was deflation. It's uh, Everybody left the room. I mean, it's the sadness in people's eyes. I was the only person left in the room. I was on this bed, and there was two minutes left, and it was just me staring at the TV, hoping for a miracle, basically. Yeah. Um, everybody left. You know, all the adults had left, and I was the only one. And 89th minute, 90th, 91st, 91st minute, and... Then it's the play starts from the back, and it just starts building up. And you know the final play is I think any Colombian will tell you, Valderrama has the ball in the midfield. You know he's both feet. He's one of those players that really use both feet perfectly. Made a through ball to Fred Rincon, who was just going in with full stride. And all of a sudden, it's one on one with the goalkeeper. I think he took like two long strides, touches, 91st minute. Megs the goalkeeper, man, and it is absolute pandemonium. Colossal, that, that yeah. announces, man. <laughs> uh, Bill, it was. I was a ten-year-old kid, and it was just. I started sobbing. It was just uncontrollable yeah, yeah. crying. I I'm gonna have to look up the YouTube Chris, on that. Oh, I got bet it's out there. Chris, so. Chris, watch yeah. it. Uh, I watch it to this day. If you put oh. that to any Colombian man, they're gonna get emotional. And it was. <laughs> everybody ran into the room. Uh, screaming. I mean, it, it was just pandemonium, and I wasn't ready for what was next. They grabbed me. We went outside, and it's like in two seconds, it's like every single person in Colombia was outside. Flags <laughs> everywhere. Everybody celebrating. Everybody. It's like the miracle on ice for the USA. It's, uh, it, Chris, obviously, I think it's the closest thing uh, mm -hmm. 
here in American sports that I've seen similar to that, man. Yeah. Wow. And I, I maybe in my voice you can sense it, but to this day, man, it is the emotion I feel, and, and that's really what soccer is to us, man. And um, it's a passion that is difficult to really get across, but it's something that is just passed on from generation to generation. You know, it's my father passed it on to me. I will hopefully pass it on to my children. And uh, I think the great beauty now is that obviously women are a big part of the sport and we're now passing it on to our daughters and mothers are passing it on to their daughters. So I just see tremendous growth potential, but uh, it's in me, man. Uh, Soccer is in me. I think if you cut me open and look (laughs) at my blood cells at a microscopic level, man, they're Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're little soccer balls. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's to be quite honest, yeah. but yeah, awesome. that's a that's a little bit of insight into into what soccer is to me. It's it's difficult to describe, but it's it's a feeling, and I'm starting to see it really in this country for the first time. Yeah, I think there is. You know, I've been around the sport a long time, but I, again, growing up in the U.S., not the same experience. It's a sport. Yeah, it competes with so many others. And, you know, I'm more and more passionate about it as the years have gone on because my kids have played and played in college and things like that. But it's one of those things that, you know, I have a passion for it, but it's it's just not like that in the U.S. Not not quite. But I, I get a passion. feel that there is it's moving that direction. You know, it is it is moving towards a, a national pride in, in in the in the game and, and the players that play it. But so. OK, so let's. You, you're in college, and uh, t- tell us about your college uh, background, and then how did you enter into the field of coaching and, and get into higher-level coaching? Uh, we'll kind of oh, go down that road. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a pretty wild story, actually. So uh, it's a happy ending. It's going to start a little sad. So, yeah, man, I played soccer uh, my whole life, uh, very typical trajectory, uh, kind of scaled levels. And I had the chance to go play college uh, at a college called College of Worcester in Ohio. Uh, had been my dream. Uh, unfortunately, as an 18-year-old, you think life is perfect. And about one month after I finished, uh, one month after I graduated high school and about a month before I was set to go to Ohio, uh, we had to be there a month before everybody else in August, uh, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, and uh, Bill, you're you're an MD. You know, uh, ovarian cancer is called the silent killer because it's right. usually it's a cancer that's uh, really not found until it's really late stages. Um, right. She was going in for a, a routine procedure, and they were lucky that they found it. It was advanced, but it hadn't spread to anywhere else. So, really, long story short, it changed everything. Um, she started chemo right before I left. Uh, the prognosis wasn't good at the time, but she did recover, and I have her to this day. Thank God for that. But that, I I would say that is probably the life moment that altered my personal trajectory in soccer. So I went off that year. Um, Things changed. Uh, It was just me and my father. He dropped me off. My mother couldn't travel. Uh, Family couldn't come up and visit me because, you know, uh, exposing my mom to, uh, to anything outside of kind of the bubble at home was not a good idea. So uh, I I ended up basically spending a year away from the house by myself. Um, I actually left the soccer team right before our first game. Um, I was in a bad place. Um, I I feel very comfortable in saying that right now. But this is really a perfect moment, too, because uh, I'm going to talk about what the modern coach is a little while later. And 
you know, this would have been a moment for, as you said, Bill, a coach mentor to kind of maybe step in and wonder or inquire why this recruit that they had spent so much time on all of a sudden wants to quit soccer with no clear explanation. Um, right. And they really, uh, I hate to say this, but they really created a negative environment for me. Uh, I was really pressured into staying on the team, and uh, there's really no other way to say it. I was kind of probably bullied in some ways by some of the upperclassmen. Uh, but the reality is they didn't know what I was going through, and I wasn't really willing to share, especially in that type of environment. So uh, I stayed the year at Worcester, uh, but I did transfer at the end of the year. Uh, was able to be with my mother through uh, finishing chemo. And like I said, she recovered, but that took me on a different path. It took me away from being a player, uh, an athlete on the field, and kind of put me in a spectator. And, uh, Bill, this is probably something I haven't told you before, but I was so angry at the sport. Uh, I had dedicated so much of my life that I pretty much refused uh, to play the game or be involved in the game, probably I would say for the next five or six years after that. So wow, I, I did, did not, not know play. That. Yeah, man, yeah, uh, I, did I not haven't know that. shared. <laughs> uh, I would, I refuse. I would refuse to play pickup games. Uh, I would, I, I didn't play. You, you, you can ask my brother later on. Um, and I would not watch soccer. Um, I look, man. I, I dedicated my life to living the college lifestyle at that point, and I was like partying and. Mm -hmm. uh, it was my way as an 18 and 19 year old of dealing with the crappy situation that uh, we had been dealt as a family at that point. Uh, right. But you learn and I think you become a better person for it. Uh, but that is what eventually put me on the track of reflecting and saying, I love this sport too much. How can I get involved? And basically I got back into coaching when I was in my last year probably of college going into graduate school and then I stayed involved with it throughout that um, and basically when I finished graduate school I had to make a decision what I was going to do professionally and here's the big one you ready for this Bill? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had uh, medical school was what I wanted to do my whole life right, right. Um, and uh, this you probably do know so I applied and got in uh, but I was not a citizen or even a permanent resident yet, even after right. 20 years in the U.S. So uh, most medical schools you can't, well, all medical schools actually you can't get loaned for unless you're a citizen or at least a permanent resident. Right. And it was just not going to happen. And they agreed to uh, defer my enrollment for one year, but uh, it was just hard decisions, man. And I got in, I started getting involved with soccer and started more passionate. And it's what led me to eventually starting the company with my brother. And that's that's the direct reason why, I think, 2010, we started GEF. Uh, I made the decision to not not wait or not reapply once I got my residency because I didn't know when that would happen. And I went all in with Geraldo Elite Football. And that is, that is really the reason why I am where I am today. And my brother's a big part of that. You, Bill, are a big part of that. Um, and I'm very grateful. And... Uh, uh, I have no regrets on that end. So that's uh, that's a little bit of my life story there. Yeah, so I was going to say that, um, the, you know, I know you and Bill have a lot of history, and I know parts of it uh, have spent some time. I'm from South Texas, and like I said, I met your brother and know a little bit about your program. But I'm curious about 
uh, I guess, the, the genesis of starting that program? Because obviously that's some risk there uh, to get that started, and especially yeah. in a place like South Texas uh, that's, yeah. more, that's, that's, more, that's more football and baseball yeah. country you know, uh, than you know, soccer. So how did you all uh, decide that, you know, that, that was worth the risk? Yeah, well, Chris, I know you're from South Texas. If you know how difficult it is, if you're trying to start yeah. something like this, but yeah, it's a definitely it's a baseball football community in general. Uh, but I think the the thing that really kind of motivated me to start it is first of all, I, you know, I started working with clients and I realized the opportunity, how much people were kind of wishing and really hoping that there was something more professional uh, available soccer wise. But really, above all else, it's it was the lack of opportunities and resources, and it was just reflecting on my own pathway. Um, I, I didn't I didn't mention this earlier, but when I when I undertook the the task of how do I make the jump from college to soccer, we had no guidance. It was literally my parents and myself doing all the research, and we did it. But uh, mm. It, it, it was being able to create that pathway and that opportunity for athletes that wouldn't have had the opportunity otherwise that I think was the ultimate motivator. And obviously my brother, the fact that he really kind of geared his whole career and his PhD towards working in something soccer uh, wise professionally uh, mm-hmm. really kind of told me, you know, if I can convince him, people already know us. Um, it's, I think we can really do tremendous things to grow the game of soccer. And that's yeah, so, really what will let it. Oh, cool. Uh, and I was going to say, so what was your ties to Texas? I don't think I you know, understood that part of the story. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, uh, so when my father finished his PhD, uh, you know, he applied to jobs in uh, Texas A&M Corpus is really kind of where he ended up. And that was in okay. 1993. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Corpus Christi from uh, last year of middle school all the way through high school. So okay. it's really kind of as a teenager and we'll always be home in, in one way or another. Uh, love Texas, sure. for sure. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. I want to get into, I'm going to do a little sidebar because I think the Geraldo Elite uh, football program that you and your brother started, I think it deserves a little conversation. I think coaches and maybe maybe parents and players that have young athletes and things might want to hear a little bit more, but I want to give my own take as a initially an outsider to that program and then ultimately a trainer with you guys. One of the things that made that soccer organization different was what you guys were trying and, and successfully brought to the table. Essentially, you came into a you came into a city that had what I would consider a weak soccer culture. Uh, in, in other words, there's very strong baseball culture, very strong football culture. There were good high school programs uh, for both of those. But soccer, there was there's an underlying interest. There's a there's players at the youth level that were you know there's a lot of kids engaged, but as they got older, they they sort of dropped out of it. But what you guys did is you brought a seriousness and a uh, let's call it a professional approach to coaching where you came in, you attended to the environment, you attended to, you had a structured plan for individual players, for teams, uh, for the entire program laid out for a year at a time. How many coaches do that? Well, I've met a yeah. lot of them. And I can tell you they don't. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them don't. But you, you guys were the first, when I met you guys and saw what you had planned, I thought, these guys are legit. 
These guys know that they have a plan. I mean, y'all get y'all sat down with my player, my daughter, and said, yeah. "This is this is Dana. She has these attributes. These are her weaknesses. This is how we're going to address those weaknesses as an individual and then as a team. This is the environment we've set with her, the expectations, all that kind of thing." That's why when we brought up the subject of coaching, and I and I you know want you to expand on y'all's you know the GEF a little bit. But that's why I wanted to have you on to talk about culture, because yeah. this is a central part of what you get, you and your brother and, and your parents did with this business, and 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 other and folks in our community, the Corpus Christi community, got to see that, and they turned they turned a city that had was a second tier club, if you will, soccer wise, uh, to bigger cities like San Antonio, Houston, Dallas into a, a program that could go and compete for state championships within a couple of years based on that that type of background so kind of uh as we get into this and i do i do want to get like uh, you you know kind of go through your your coaching development as well sure, and, yeah. and where you're at at this point but i want you to talk a little bit about that program because it really ties into the core question i wanted to go over with you is you know um you know how do we set up culture how do we how do we um how do we set up environments where we can overcome barriers that athletes and, and, and young athletes have? Absolutely, uh, Bill. So I, I think really you, you kind of hit it on the head with one comment that you made. Um, when we're talking about what me and my brother do in terms of Geraldo Elite Football, GEF, um, we, we look at ourselves and we, we take the attitude of, of a professional. And I think that is really where the discussion has to start. So, um, Obviously, when we're talking about coaches, uh, there's coaches of all types, of all, all different sports. But there is a pathway, just like in everything, for you to do this at a level where it's not just what you think, but it really has to be data-driven, right, uh, which is right. kind of the modern direction, and it has to be science-based. Uh, right. And I think that was really the starting point. Uh, we have a huge advantage with my brother. You know, he's written dissertation. He's PhD. So he's a full-on academic. Um, I come from academia background. Uh, so when you set that as your groundwork, right, you're no longer uh, dealing with clients and with athletes and sharing what you think or this is my opinion, right? Now right. you're really taking it to a level, and I'll, I'll use Dana as an example. I think she was 12 or 13 at the time, right? Where right. you sit down an athlete, and it's it, it's about understanding. Uh, in the coaching world, we talk it's about understanding the needs of the athlete. And when we talk about the needs, um, we're talking about psychosocial needs, right? We're talking about physical needs. Uh, we're talking about just emotional. Uh, we're talking about the holistic approach. Everything that goes into making an athlete an athlete and a person right, right. so uh it, it's it's cool kind of hearing you talk about you know when we started off with with dana and some of those athletes but i'm gonna i'm gonna say this um if you want to create a culture or if you want to get to that point where eventually in a city maybe like corpus you're competing for championships number one it's first about listening if you want to create a culture, you have to first listen to the athletes and the people who are the ones that make up that culture. And then, right. then you can take all the data and all your knowledge, and then you can apply it to the specifics. 
But I, I would say the biggest single mistake I see, whether it's a full professional coach that you know that knows their stuff, or from a beginner coach, it's simply that they don't take the time to listen to their athletes, their clients, or simply their the environment that they're around. And when you don't listen, you're not really understanding that what I call the microculture, the culture for the area or you know the club that you're in specifically. Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good point uh, because you know the my my line of work uh, has a pretty well established uh, culture. You know, being in the in the military, especially the Marine Corps. But uh, I think one of the things when you talked about kind of micro and macro culture is something that I know is uh, I've struggled with. You know, as a young leader and now as a little bit more senior leader, but. Uh, I don't know what's harder. Is, is it to to build a culture or to, um, I guess, reinforce a, a good culture once it's already there? You know, so I think there's, um, you know, you see it even at the highest uh, uh, levels of professional sport where, you know, teams may be good, win one championship, and then they're a shell of themselves a year later because they don't know how to maintain that culture. Because like, if you work and work and work and get to a certain point, yep. uh, you know, it's like I almost think it's harder to sustain the culture, you know, over time uh, than it is, you know, building the culture if you have a good foundation like in academics or data like you're talking about. Absolutely, Chris. Um, I, you know what? I think you, you're touching base on something that has become kind of a focal point of what hopefully Gerald Elite Football GF will become. Because, uh, And I probably should have said this earlier. Uh, we're, we we kind of took a year break, but we're actually – GF is getting ready to come back in full force uh, in terms of player development. But to, to touch base on what you said, Chris, um, when we started GF, uh, you know, we had our values, you know, we sat down and we had all these values and, and we have this culture that we've talked about that we want to create. And then we went about doing it. Right. But mm -hmm. what you said happened exactly what you said. Right. Which is three, four years down the road, you know, we are reflecting and we're trying to make changes and we realize we're struggling maintaining the culture that we thought we were going to yeah. be able to keep. So what changed at that point, Chris? And this is what happened. And the reason I've been reflecting on this recently is actually the Zoom, uh, not the Zoom, um, the the shoe company founder that just died, uh, Zappos. He, yeah. uh, he, he had a very strong sense of creating a positive culture. And one of the things that they did at their company, and this is just recently I found out about this, but it's very applicable to what we did, is that they started hiring in their company specifically for their values. In other words, they would not hire somebody that would meet a couple of values. They would, they would interview people. If it took a thousand interviews until they found that person that actually already naturally met those values. And I think, mm -hmm. and again, this was not knowing this, but it just kind of happened naturally. And I think Bill can attest because he was, he was a big part of this is that in our later years, uh, in Corpus, you know, when Dana was actually, you know, seven, 16, 17, 18, those years, uh, we really started only taking on parents and athletes through rigorous interview processes where we really kind of left the conversation really with a calmness that this is an athlete and a parent that already bring these values to the table. So basically what happened is that 
as time progressed, uh, we, we were able to maintain that culture much more, uh, much more to the level that we wanted to and for a much longer period of time simply because the people that we were surrounding ourselves with really thought much more like we did. And I think that no. I think that was our greatest success, to be quite honest. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of something. Uh, I, you know, I, I put some notes from a book I read called The Culture Code. That you know, I think we're already touching on some of it. The things I learned from that book, and you know, you learn through GEF. But you know, they talk about you know recruiting for uh, you know the person or the values, and then training for the skills. Right. Because if you yep. get uh, if you get the person right, because, I mean, obviously you have to have some skills there if you're talking about, you know, potentially, you know, elite soccer players. But if you have the right person, in this case, the person, you know, the player and their family like you and if they were if they're willing to work, I mean, you could put all the skills there. But if they don't have a good base, a good skeleton, you know, of those values, like you're never going to be able to build, you know, any skills onto, you know, a bad foundation. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, yeah. you, you said it perfectly. It's uh, the more you surround with people that are like minded, really the stronger uh a team in my in my case that you're really going to form and uh the more success i think you're going to have long term for sure yeah awesome i think it's a yeah i think that's a great point to to pause on and think about a little bit because the reality is what you're pointing out is something many programs let's let's put okay soccer's one sport but we're talking sport generally coaching generally and when, uh, let's say, a, a coach is trying to establish a successful program, what you did is, you know, th these are the steps I'm thinking through that happened. You you said, what are, my, what are our values? What do we value? Period. This is us. This is who we are. This is what we stand for and positive values. Then what happened is those are taught to the people that you start training with, to your program, if you will, to your players. But then ultimately, at, over time, you have to continue to reflect on it. And what I was just thinking about is, is as time goes on, and I, I know I saw this with GEF when, when it was there with you guys, you start to attract, because of the success, you start to attract more and more, let's call it talented players, that that sometimes uh, the whole the whole fit isn't there. Yeah. Okay? And I know I've seen this working with the USL program uh, that you were involved with as well. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you get players that come in that are have all the – the skill, they have all the talent, but they don't have the value and they are not a good fit. And it's tempting as a coach to say, yeah, I'll overlook that because they're going to do X on the field. Yep. But then what happens is every time you do that, you degrade the base. And and that's one point I'm, I wanted to hit yeah. this hard because this is one of the points is we have a series of coaches we're going to interview and a, a few of the ones I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to have on like yourself uh, have very extensive coaching backgrounds, 30 you know years plus with, uh, you know, winning programs and things like that. Yeah. And it's not always just about winning, but I know that some of those coaches have very strong culture. They have very strong value that sir, you know, are at the base. That's yeah. like, it's like, this is unacceptable if you're outside of this area. It's, you know, uh, it, Bill, I think you said something really important. Um, I, I think we all know who John Wooden is, uh, but mm -hmm. I was actually watching, uh, Bill Walton, who most people know who Bill Walton is as well. He was right. doing commentary and he was talking about, uh, his experience at UCLA, uh, just as a student. Mm 
and they were asking him about what who his worst professor was, right? And his answer was, I didn't have any terrible professors uh, because they were all students of John Wooden, right? And that got me <laughs> thinking. I'm like, I'm like, oh man, he's right. He's like John Wooden, and we've kind of moved away from it, but he was so popular and he was such a central figure on that campus and created this such an amazing culture that all these people started studying under him and really started applying those same philosophies. So they created a microculture at UCLA where it was really all these amazing leaders, mentors, and instructors, right? Um, right. And then going to your point, Bill, right? If, if you, well, I'll put it this way. Um, I'm, I'm going to be very interested in he hearing these coaches that you guys bring in because in soccer in particular, I mean, we can all watch a game. We could all turn on a Premier League game today. And, you know, these coaches have to make these decisions. We're only seeing what's happening on TV. But like you said, some of these players don't meet the values, right? Uh, what, what, effect, what effect does a player that doesn't meet the values of the standards of the club or of the entity, what negativity does that actually bring? And uh, as fans, we the reality is we don't always get to see that because we're only seeing it on TV. It really takes uh, an in-depth reflection or investigation of the dynamics, right? The interpersonal dynamics of a company or of a club, which you have seen at the at, at the USL level, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. How detrimental it can be when you have this amazing athlete but they just simply don't bring the qualities that that entity or that team is really looking for. And personally, Bill and Chris, this is, and again, every coach, every person is going to have a different philosophy, but this, this is really kind of one of those things that I've, I've really changed that. And I've noticed if you're true yeah. to those values, that is always going to be the most important thing. And you will find that player eventually that has that similar skill, but more importantly, meets the other criteria that will make the journey for everybody much more enjoyable and much more successful. Yeah. You, you think about it, Sammy, uh, from even, uh, we've been talking about soccer as a basis for a conversation, but you think about, you know, the high visibility, um, you know, I guess more American sports, uh, you know, American football and basketball. And you look at some of the, the dynasties and you kind of have that perfect synergy of, uh, coach and culture and then you still have to have a star player in a lot of cases to make it work yeah. um and and sometimes if you have that you know key player coach combination with the culture you can put all different types of role players i mean think about the new england patriots right i mean belichick and brady i mean they won with wide receivers that nobody could even name again you know Absolutely. i mean it, it was like a strong it was like discipline do your job, good defense, smart quarterback, you know, stuff like that. But then you think about the Spurs. I mean, you had Popovich, oh, you know, man. setting the culture and the tone, um, you know, good ownership to let him do his thing. And then, you know, think about like the the twin towers of, you know, quiet uh, leaders, uh, David Robinson and Tim Duncan, you know, leading by example. You know, yeah. those guys, you know, weren't you know, grabbing people by the jersey, but they were just like, worked hard, very proficient, you know, shut up and play. Um, so I think that, you know, everything you're saying, I mean, it's played out in 
all different types of sports. I mean, you mentioned John Wooden. Absolutely. You look at Coach K from Duke. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of people that have done it, but it is a, more on the side of culture and, um, you know, the type of people. Uh, and, and then you see, I mean, there's obviously be, be flashes in the pan, right? You'll see, you know, a rented championship team. You know, the recruit, uh, can, I think Kentucky did it one year. I mean, they have a pretty good program in basketball, but they got, you know, recruited five kids that were yeah. all in the NBA the next year. And then, you know, they were barely in the top 25, you know, in a shell of themselves. So oh, it's, it's the ones that, in, in a, you know, you know, anyway, we could go on for hours, but I think it, no, it's, it's, it's proven yeah. empirically. So. No, it's uh, Chris. I, I, I'm a sports fanatic, first of all. Uh, so yes. everything that you've talked about, man, I, I you know I've I've read in depth about. So I, I just want to make a real quick comment about the John Calipari because uh, college basketball in particular is is one of my favorite sports and uh, following awesome. Michigan State, obviously. But yeah, so when when John Calipari, you know, he he's a great coach. He's obviously a, a, a great like coach. Uh, he motivates players, but. It's a perfect example of a coach that made a decision about what type of culture he wants. And you said it perfectly. Uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't mince words. He went to Kentucky and he basically, he told, you know, uh, the board, he told the students, he told the student athletes, I'm going to bring the best athletes here, right? And yeah. I'm going to guarantee that you guys will go on to the NBA next year and you guys are going to be millionaires, right? <laughs> yeah. What's the result of that? The result is they were amazing. Yes, you know, they won championships. They whooped Michigan State, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but did the culture last? And the sad reality is no. It's mm. I, I think it's an unsustainable thing because there are multiple ways to win, and especially at the youth level. But if you mm. really want to set up a company, a sports entity for success, it, it's about the people. It's about having a common vision. And sports is absolutely no different than that. And I think it's often overlooked. Yep. Awesome. I'd like to transition. And also I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, we were talking about your background as a coach. You over the years have achieved a lot as a coach. First off, you um, ha hold an A license in, uh, as far as the national coaching license, which is a very yep. difficult uh, uh, level of coaching expertise to obtain. And you also have worked with the U.S. National Program, um, and you also are, you know, uh, head of a the Tennessee State um, uh, Program. Can you uh, tell us how, uh, you know, kind of how you went through that, where you ended up, where you are right now? Yeah, no, perfect, Bill. Um, so uh, I think I think this is great because I think first of all, uh, most coaches, especially when I started didn't really understand what, what a pathway would be to eventually coach at whatever level you aspire to. So my, my pathway was basically the following. Um, U.S. soccer has done a really good job of getting on the world stage in terms of coaching education. Um, soccer is a sport that's unique in the sense that if you want to coach this at a professional level, and when I, when I say professional, it doesn't just mean athletes playing in the Premier League. It means actually working in an environment where people are paying you, right, for your expertise and knowledge. But soccer is unique in the sense that really to work at any sort of kind of elite level around the world, including the U.S., you do have to go through licensing processes, processes that are extremely rigorous. Um, as a result, and Bill, you've, you've seen this, uh, the soccer world, especially the professional soccer world, 
is littered with ex-professionals in all kinds of different fields. It's a lot of people that either currently or have come from some other background. So I, I was really no different, right? I really came from kind of right. an academic background, went into this. So that really sets it up. So I, I went through the licensing process here in the U.S., which is FIFA recognized. It's extremely important. Most countries do not have FIFA recognized licensing programs. And FIFA is the international governing body for soccer around the world. One of the most powerful entities around the world, actually. So um, the process basically starts uh, right now. The current U.S. soccer pathway is the following. Um, there's a series of grassroots courses uh, that basically address one of the four game modules. They address either the 4v4, 7v7, 9v9, or 11v11. And obviously, each one of those game modules addresses a specific age. So it's those four, and then you move on to the D course. The D course is the first one kind of into the pathway for people that want to do this professionally. And basically, each level, so you go from the D, then if you finish that, you go on to the C license, then the B license, then the A license, and they've just added new ones, which is the pro license. You, you currently have to be working in a professional program. And they've added the academy director. So A license is kind of the pinnacle. And then beyond that, you can move on to a couple other licenses. You have to be working in those environments. Um, ten, well, I actually got my E license almost 20 years ago, which doesn't exist anymore. And I was still a youth player, um, kind of fell off of coaching for a long time. And then 10 years ago, I decided to jump back in it and basically took the D. Um, I think this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say for anybody who's aspiring doing this. Uh, it, it was my attitude when I went to that course. Uh, I knew that if I wasn't going to pursue academia any longer, I was going to do this, but I was going to try to do it at the highest level possible. So... When I went to that D course, it was pretty simple. Uh, my mindset was I was going there to prove that I was one of the best coaches. And I did that with the mindset of being open-minded and listening to people that are more experienced than me. Not going in there and showing right. them that I'm some sort of amazing coach. Um, and that's really what kicked it off, Bill and Chris. It's uh, I was offered after that, I, I must have done a good job at the course because it was actually the director of Florida and the director of Texas, Neil, were running the course at the time. And the course finished, and they basically both came up to me afterwards, and they offered me a job uh, as an ODP coach the following week. And I basically, the, the following week, I traveled to Alabama for the first time with the ODP program, um, just kind of, kind of observing and, you mm -hmm. know, I took the opportunity and the coach I was under, he saw, you know, how passionate, how dedicated I was. And he pretty much let me coach the teams all weekend. So that was my first kind of jump into the professional realms. And it, it just kind of was a snowball effect. It obviously motivated me a lot to have success, but uh, I just kind of said, I'm going to keep on doing this. I'm going to keep on taking the courses and always with the attitude to go learn open-minded, but try to be the best. And I, I think it's an important thing. I always get asked this question, how did you do this? Well, go prove yourself. Don't don't just go to a course and be a spectator. Be an active participant and uh, get involved. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's a life lesson that 
everyone needs to know. You know, I was just talking to my middle daughter the other day about the idea that um, whatever it is you're doing, do it the best you can. And if you're going to, you know, she's, uh, you know, had an art competition that she was something she was working on. She's and said, you know, you need to be the best at what you can do. And and we had a conversation related to soccer. That's like, you know, uh, you know, she's she's a pretty good soccer player, and she steps on the game, and you know, maybe it's a lesser team. You know, I, I you have to play at the level you're capable, and don't play down to you know, don't play down to a different level. Uh, when when it's when it's below your capability, always, even if you have to push yourself when no one else is doing so, push yourself to that next level. That's powerful, and uh, it's a reason for success uh, that you've had at the, uh, to this uh, to this point. Yeah, yeah well, I was gonna say one one thing that struck me too about what you said, Sammy. Um, you know, some things that I've learned be be just being around great people and trying to soak up what I can. And one of the things you said about you know how you participated in that course is uh, something we talk about a lot on the podcast, like, um, you know, being mindful and being deliberate, uh, going into something that you know is important to you. And uh, when it comes to listening and absorbing things from other people, uh, you know, recently I was like a little retreat with a, you know, for leadership with a bunch of incredible folks. And uh, the the main uh, facilitator said something um, that that reminded me uh, of what you were saying. He said, you know, are you, are you listening to people uh, in order to be able to respond to them when it's your turn? Or are you listening to actually understand what they're saying? Because in a lot of cases, when we're, especially when we're in a competitive environment or, you know, in your case, I can imagine, you know, you're, you know, kind of going through a program to, you know, become an elite coach. It's like you're, you're listening, but you're listening to, to maybe respond if you're questioned or, you know, something like that. So, um, you know, when he said that, there's so many applications, including the one you mentioned. It's like, are you actually listening to, to learn and absorb and soak up what you can from this experience? Or are you just trying to not look stupid, for lack of a better way to say yeah. it, right? Are you, are, you, are you just listening to be like, oh, I got to yeah. remember that? Or are you, are you trying to actually absorb it, you know, and just be quiet and listen and learn, you know, versus like, I'm going to be, you know, the one popping up with answers or, you know, be ready if I'm tested. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the way we even go into listening, um, can be important in those, uh, in those settings. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's cool to hear just the perspective of different environments, but also how much, how much they have in common. And I, I I, I just want to share that because I think it's a lesson in sports in general. I, one thing I really want people to reflect on is that sports, we tend to kind of put on a pedestal sometimes that it's this amazing thing that only a few people get to do at the highest level, which is, which is true. But it's not something that just happens by chance, whether it's on the coaching side or whether it's on the athlete side. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it from anybody that reaches the highest level. And, and I think it's important to give the opportunities support that but also like you said to understand that uh, it's a very deep process to get to this point and a lot of it has to do with simply the willingness and the desire to listen and learn and sometimes take a step back yourself so that you can really improve yourself yeah absolutely and uh, i mentioned earlier um that book the culture code and you mentioned the zappos founder and that was one of the uh, companies they looked at. They looked at um, Navy SEAL Team 6. 
They actually yeah. looked at the Spurs. So that's a really cool book. Uh, um, but the the three main kind of themes, I think we've touched on two of the three. The first one is, you know, building safety in your culture to make everyone feel comfortable, you know, working together. Um, obviously establishing a purpose through a common goal. You, know, you talked about that. Um, but one of the ones we haven't really shared or talked about exactly is uh, other piece of this culture code is sharing vulnerability to show that no one needs to be perfect. So is that something that, um, you know, you've built into the process or seen being a coach where it is helpful to, um, you know, treat people's mistakes the right way or maybe oh. reveal yourself. So, so well, how's that? Absolutely, come? Chris. So look, um, the the vulnerable the vulnerability aspect is probably one of the pillars of what I described earlier as the modern coach or the profile of a modern coach. Sure. I would say at every single coaching education course that I teach, vulnerability, making yourself vulnerable as an instructor or as a coach participant is the number one thing that we try to get across. So with our athletes, it's really no different, right? Um, we, we teach about a holistic player-centered approach. Again, that's, that's really the modern, the modern direction. I'm talking about anywhere in the world, even at the highest professional Premier League level, right? Mm-hmm. So when you look at it like that, and when you take yourself as a coach away from the center of attention, and it's all about your players, um, it makes things much easier, right? So I look at I look at your question and I ask myself, if I'm truly as a coach have created a player centered environment, right? That means I'm always putting the needs of my athletes above mine. And one mm-hmm. of those is understanding that vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities there's a lot of different ways, right? It it extends from creating an environment where people feel safe about sharing their opinions all the yeah. way to creating an environment where we accept people's differences, right? I mean, I, I think that's one of those things that is forefront. If we all turn on the TV, uh, we're, t- we're seeing that on TV every single day. So um, right. creating that safe environment by, I'm going to go back to this, first of all, listening. It's not about mm-hmm. me going in there and saying, you know, guys, it's these are the rules. It's safe in here. No, it's about showing what's safe right so me being the first that is willing to share a crazy story right what did i do with the break or me being the first i'll share i'll I'll share a very simple one uh me being the first to wear a crazy sweater or something that may have not been accepted in the past doing a team event with girls team for instance and Mm -hmm. going to a manny petty party and as a male coach, <laughs> allowing my nails to be painted, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is something that uh, if it was the 1970s, I probably wouldn't have my job the next day, right? But <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> right, yeah. This is what the modern coach is. And if I'm willing to put myself out there and be vulnerable, then it immediately creates an environment where I don't have to preach vulnerability and say, say that this is safe it's automatically created and the players understand that it truly is a fully safe uh, environment where all vulnerabilities are accepted. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how much that uh, is counterintuitive in a lot of cultures though, where, 
you know, everybody wants to show, uh, you know, no weaknesses, right? It's like, yeah. and, and it's like, it's like, it makes like such a falsehood uh, because everybody knows that you're, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes. So like you create a culture where nobody wants to report, you know, on any shortcomings. And before you know it, it's fallen down like a house of cards. And so oh. um, it's amazing how that showing vulnerability, taking ownership, uh, creates a culture really of like continuous, you know, uh, self-improvement, right? Cause you're, you're more self-aware. You're like, I screwed that one up coach. You know, oh. I, I need to. And so it, it went, I think that's just such a huge part that I'm glad in the, the modern coaching. And I think the modern, uh, you know, I know the modern military and the modern business culture has finally started to see that, that a lot of these ultimate failures that look like successes, you know, on paper, um, were a lot of this, nobody wanted to admit it. Enron or people that work for Bernie Madoff. I'm sure yeah. you, know, you can look at all these. You can look at all these examples that, like, if somebody would just been like, "Hey, we we got to cut the the cord on this," you know, jackassery here because you know this is not <laughs> yeah. right. So anyway, no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So send me, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say slight pivot. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about culture, we talked about values, and uh, you've given us some very very strong insight into both your business background where how you employ you know employ these ideas you're uh, i presume at this point uh in a leadership role with the tennessee uh, you know state soccer program are are you able to implement this is this something that you're uh, are you seeing this at the higher levels uh that you've uh, now gone into coaching and and uh, sort of the bureaucracy of soccer a little bit yeah so bill i am so happy you asked this question because i was actually going to bring this up myself so uh, the first thing is I would not even be working for Tennessee State Soccer Association unless they were an entity that was really in line with my personal way of thinking. So I look on that front, Hans Hobson is the executive director for Tennessee. He's, he's really my direct boss. Um, he has created such an amazing culture. It's really what I call the modern office. It's, uh, it's about everybody having the same values, us having a very clear mission as an entity. And above all else, we start every single meeting talking about how vulnerabilities should be at the center of everything. So uh, on that front, uh, in terms of Tennessee State Soccer, I could not have asked for a better environment to work in. But at the same time, uh, I would have not even uh, really gone out to really uh, take on this job if it wouldn't have been that. So that's that's great. And I'm seeing more and more of that in terms of the professional aspects of the game. But, Bill, the reality is that I think we have a really, really long ways to go uh, for this to become the standard. And I give Tennessee a lot of credit because, again, I, I think they're, they're kind of setting the tone for what a state association should be like. But this is something that really needs to kind of seep over to all levels of soccer and especially – the youth club level um because i think that's where there's a major disconnect still and a lot of it still has to go to the point that a lot of the smaller clubs and even some of the bigger clubs just don't have enough resources in terms of the level of professional coaches that can then further educate their parents so it's uh we're getting better uh, but I think there is a long ways to go for this to become kind of the standard across the board. I've got to ask the question, and, and this is a little another pivot sort of, but 
you know, a lot of the folks that listen to the WFL Live podcast, uh, we, you know, we have a certain segment that are people that are young athletes and some of their parents that, uh, you know, it's not just soccer, but other sports. What do you think, and then this is kind of a broad question, but what do you think are the biggest challenges and barriers for the young athlete to grow and develop? Because I, I interact a lot with players and athletes that, you know, the story is, well, they're really good and we think he or she is going to play in college or, you know, that kind of story. And yep. what do you think are the challenges that those young athletes face and maybe those families face? And uh, the I guess talk barriers first. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, so I, I'm going to approach this uh, bill in, and I, I don't think it's only going to apply to youth athletes. I'm gonna, I think it's going to apply even to athletes in this country that are trying to make that jump to the semi-pro pro. But right. I am I am going to address specifically athletes that are in this country. So first of all, I think the number one barrier, and I've thought about this really deeply. Um, is the lack of overall education about what the process is actually like, okay? Another way to put it at it is realities, right, versus fiction. Reality versus fiction. So let me clarify and let me expand on that. Um, I think there's just too many... Too many people out there, and I don't want to just say they're coaches because it's 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 sometimes coaches, it's a lot of parents, it's friends of families, it's other individuals that are just giving a lot of incorrect information to athletes. And I, I think you probably saw this in your own process as your daughters were kind of right. trying to make the decision of you know what's the best team, what's the best environment. So um, I think we're just we just have too many people out there giving their opinion based on what they think. And I will go back to kind of what, how I started talking about GF, which is we have to move away from that. We live in a data-driven world. You have to use facts, you have to use science, and things have to be backed up by data. So when I tell an athlete, you know, hey, I think you should go to a Division One school because this is going to, you know, because this is where so-and-so went or they won a championship, it's just not enough. Um, you really, You really have to go back to the athlete is the center of everything and then dig deeper what are the specific needs of that athlete and that's not a question that can just be answered by anybody and definitely not in a simple conversation so i think the lack of education from people in general and therefore the lack of knowledge from the athletes the young athletes really puts them on a dangerous pathway um and i think that pathway in a lot of instances is what we call the vertical pathway, which is this. I start off playing at five years old on my local rec team. Then, okay, I want to try to jump a couple years later to the competitive team at my club, right? And then my parents think, well, the next logical step is that I have to play at the ECNL, which is the next higher team that travels maybe regionally, right? Right. And then if I'm good enough at that, 17, 18, can I jump to a MLS or a professional academy team? And there's a big problem with that model, which is it's, it's, it's vertical, and it's really only a pathway for a very small group of people. And I'm going to be very straight about who that group of people is. It's people that have major financial resources, and right. it just eliminates the majority of the population. So, again, it's people giving knowledge based on kind of what they see and what they feel and maybe what has worked in other sports. 
but it's not rooted in any sort of fact about what the actual process is. So I'll wrap this part off in the following. Um, there's a recruiting entity here in the U.S. I, I, their name's kind of eluding me right now, but they put out a great series of tweets uh, this week, which said the following. It says, if your athlete goes and plays D1, they're an elite athlete. If they go play D2, they're an elite athlete. If they go play D3, they're an elite athlete. If they play NAIA, they're an elite athlete. That's a correct statement. That's a right, statement yeah. from somebody that knows what the process is and understand that there is a pathway for every player that's best for them. When we hear somebody <laughs> say something like, you have to go play Division One because that's where the best go play, that immediately, that's the type of advice that tells me, that person doesn't really know what the soccer culture is in this country. So, yeah, knowledge. Well, well, I was going to say the cool thing about what you said, and I don't understand very. I mean, my I have a twelve-year-old, and she's just now getting into the you know pretty competitive uh, soccer areas. Um, but uh, I mean, that's cool that you said. I mean, obviously, the one model that's very vertical, it, you know, you have to have a lot of resources to be able to do that, but. You're, what you're saying on the flip side is like you could be a Division two, three NAIA player, but if you're, you know, have just as much potential, just as much work ethic, if not more, it, you may get discovered <clears throat> a little bit different way. But if you're kicking ass at an NAIA school, you know, great defender, you know, scoring goals, uh, you know, you may meet with that other vertical, you know, set of people, right? At some point, exactly. it's just a little bit different path. If you're the right music. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, yeah. I, I, I probably want to clarify this. We're, so, yeah, you're, you're going to – the vertical pathway here in the U.S. It's, is something that is going to exist for a long time. So I don't know if we'll ever get rid of it. But yeah. it, it's something that U.S. soccer is actively, through our coaching education courses, is actively trying to educate uh, the masses that it's really not the – it's not the appropriate way of, first of all, how to identify athletes – and it's definitely not the appropriate pathway for all athletes to achieve getting to the highest level. As a matter of fact, it's a terrible way to do it because it's, it's really only a pathway for a very small demographic. So really what we want to move to in terms of educating and actually implementing is what's more of a horizontal model. And in the simplest sense, a horizontal model basically means that I'll try to use I'll try to use an actual real world example. A horizontal model would be somebody, for instance, playing at their local club team in a very small city where there's definitely no chance of playing on a travel team, right? But right. that club team is connected to a bigger club team that is developmentally focused that from time to time will give that athlete a chance to play with that team. But with the understanding that they should continue playing with their local team because, and this is the important point, many of the best soccer players and athletes in general around the world come from areas where there are microcultures that have done something to develop these athletes. The problem is those athletes don't necessarily then have the resources or the pathway to actually be seen at a larger level. If we have a horizontal model, everything's connected and these athletes don't fall through the cracks basically. And everybody gets a chance to be seen at some, at some point. Another very direct example of how that can play out a few years back. Uh, my family and I spent some time in Ireland 
and I met Sirian Kelly, who was a, at the time, he was a director of coaching for the youth program for the Sligo Rovers, which is a very small community. It's a small town that had its own, you know, local professional team. So the Sligo Rovers were the professional team, but they had an entire academy below that. What's interesting about Sirian's story is that he was basically... I guess in the, you know, we were only there a few weeks, but we kind of got the feel that he was a big deal when we were there. You know, we were just talking, we were talking about the youth, you were all the kids that were playing there. And uh, he was a little bit younger than me. And he was, he was, uh, you know, I knew he was a professional player at some point. Well, as it turns out, he is like this kind of Sligo Rover Hall of Fame goalkeeper that, you know, helped them get into the championship. And he, I think he made four saves in a, in a shootout or something to win a championship. Wow. But what was interesting about him is he was their best goalkeeper of all time, right? But as a night, I think it was as an 18-year-old, he had a major knee injury. Yeah. And if that would have happened to him in the United States, he would have never had a professional career. Oh, because in the United States, you have this direct pathway. And we talked about this at length while we were watching our, you know, the my daughters were in his soccer program while we were spending some time there. <clears throat> and what we he explains is if I was in the U.S., I would have never had a... 10, 12 year professional career yep. because they, what, what their system allows for is that horizontal approach where he was able to play in the lesser leagues, the, the, the lower levels, if you will, he was able to continue to develop after his injury. But what happens is in, in, you know, the U S is we have this college recruitment pathway. Like for instance, my, my, my middle daughter is, I mean, she's like 15 years old and it's like, Oh, do you know where you're going to college? Yeah. You, already, you know, and it's, and I, I just feel like it's so rushed and it's like, oh, yeah. you know, and, 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 and the reality is if she had an injury right now, the odds of her actually getting signed somewhere are probably fairly low. You know, if yep. you know, in that program. But if she's in a part of an academy system or a system that has that horizontal approach, hey, fine, she can recover appropriately. She doesn't have to rush, and she can continue to play even if it's just as an adult player. Absolutely. And she she can keep going. And then maybe she's twenty one, twenty two years old, and maybe she sort of says, you know, I think I really want to do this. I've really developed my career over this time. And maybe I'll take a shot at the big leagues. And, and because it's part of the, the same pathway, um, they have that opportunity. So I, I've always thought when you all were talking about that, I, was, I just thought of Sirian Kelly and how he made that very point. He goes, I would have never had a career if I was in a program that said from 18 years old, you have to be on a certain trajectory. Yep. You have to be there already. And at half the time, I mean, when I was a college athlete, I grew an inch after I was 21 years old. I mean, yeah. some, some of these 17, 18, 19 year olds that are signing in colleges or, or trying to, you know, make it to the big leagues, uh, you know, some of them haven't even physically matured. And, yeah. and I think that's a big point. One other point I wanted to make is what you, and I really am glad you brought this up. You're, you're very close with my middle daughter, Jillian. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you mentioned is something we're kind of learning about right now. You know, my older daughter kind of went the D1 route. It was kind of D1 or die. And, and, and I think in the end, I think a lot of, a lot of these athletes, and this is maybe advice for somebody that has a budding athlete that they think they're going to have a college career, please do what Sammy just said. Look and listen to what that athlete needs. And the reason I say that, when my oldest daughter went off to a D1 school, she had a D1 scholarship. Big-time player, goes and, and, and could compete at that level, but the reality was the school was not a good match. Yep. The program educationally was not a good match for her long-term goals. And the, the program, quite frankly, the, the, the soccer itself was not a good match for her. 
And in the end, it shortened her career in a sense that she just didn't want to continue going that route. And so it's interesting with my middle daughter, we're now looking, we're taking a lot more time with this and, and we're having this conversation that is much more in line with what I've learned walking along next to you and learning from you and your brother is that, you know what, what does she need academically? First off, what does this girl want to do? Because I don't care anymore whether she plays D1, D2, NAIA. I don't care. I actually don't care whether she plays or not. I want, if she wants to play, if she loves it and she's passionate, I'm there for her and I'll, I'll take her everywhere I can and we'll talk to any coaches we need to. But what we have to do first is we have to figure out what do you need? What were, where would you be happy? Cause I don't want to have this conversation two years from now after she's in college, dad, this school, I don't, I don't even like this school. I don't, yeah. <laughs> why am I here? This isn't academically, who cares if I'm playing on the big stage against UT on national TV which was what my daughter was able to do. Who cares if I'm doing that, if I'm not 100% happy Absolutely. Or, or fulfilled academically or socially? You know, Maybe I'm at this huge university where I feel like I'm a small fish in a gigantic ocean. You know, There's so many angles to that, but I, I'm really glad you brought that up, that we need to listen to the athletes more, sometimes as parents. And I always think I, I felt like I always listened to my, my kids, and, but I know that my attitude about it has changed a lot now. You know, I was a Division One sprinter, so I and I felt like, okay, I'm going to a big school. That's what I'm going to do, and that was the attitude in the '70s and '80s and you know, early '90s when I went to school. Is is oh, you're going D1, and yeah. that's, that's the way oh, it yeah. is. You know, you had that attitude, but now I realize it's like I just was fortunate that I went to a school that was a good fit and that I had a good education. But a lot of these kids feel like they're pushed into something, and sometimes the parents drive that. And oh, so yeah. we need to make sure we listen, and, and that's my little two two cents on all that. But it, it it's a lot of practical experience I've learned, and it's changed my attitude. I love the game, and it's going to break my heart when I don't see any of my kids playing soccer. Uh, but it's but at the same time, I also realize the bigger picture now that that recruiting process, that long term, where are they going to be happy as human beings, is way way bigger than the the number next to their D. Oh you know, man, what, what level yeah. they're playing at if they're that type of player. I was going to say, I'm learning a lot from this conversation. I've enjoyed it because, like I said, I have a eight-year-old boy and a 10- and 12-year-old girl, and uh, they're all competitive in, in a lot of cases in different sports. And so it's kind of interesting to have, like, you know, we've talked about soccer a lot, but we've talked, I guess, as much or more on the philosophical side about – um, you know, how to do this the right way, you know, picking the right culture, what it looks like. So I think a lot of people that want the best for their kids, um, I think will we'll benefit from programs like you have and, and hopefully our podcast, because a, a lot of, you know, uh, like you talked about earlier, a lot of times the parents are, you know, the help or the big hurt for yeah. their kids, right? Then they don't even realize it. I mean, they, they, they probably advocate and in some cases want to throw money at it, but um, it, you know, and it's hard because people, I'm sure Sammy, you've had to tell uh, people who, you know um, you know, we talked about, you know, growing at different phases. Some kids like, you know, start playing when they're five. And then when physically everybody starts catching up with them, it's like, Hey, they have all these skills, but man, they're just not good athletes. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're not, especially like soccer. 
soccer. I mean, that's probably a, a hurtful wake up call when you're like, hey, your kid just it trains their butt off, but they, you know, they have the mind. But I mean, to play at an elite level, I mean, you got to be fast, you got to be quick. Absolutely. You know, you have to do. And so I, I tell my kids this too about because sometimes they'll they'll come later into a sport, right? Just because you know, mil- being military family. Uh, we got a, I mean, they're very adaptable and they're good leaders and, you know, uh, the military lifestyle offers a lot of that. But when it comes to, you know, growing up in a certain sport in the same program, you know, bouncing around on base, off base, I mean, they, they've had a hard time, especially in skill sports like soccer and basketball, where, you know, you have to have like fine motor skills that people have honed over years. And so I tell my kids, I was like, hey, you know, until you really get into middle school and high school, you really don't know how good people are going to be, Absolutely. you know, I yep. mean, I mean, because now you can work hard and like I said, do a lot of things and get extra coaching and strength training. But, you know, especially my 12 year old, I told her, uh, I was like, you know, I played basketball at a pretty high level and uh, I just said, just the way you're built, the way in the first two years that you're playing, uh, you know, cause she gets frustrated cause kids can handle the ball better and do yeah. these other things. I'm like, I was like, Hey, you know, just just hang in there because you know you're going to pass them up potentially and so i think you know a lot of this is just patience too you know so um yeah yeah no absolutely i was going to say one last thing that i i think you guys have made some really great points in terms of the need to support young athletes Uh, i was going to add this component because i think it's extremely important uh, we tend to look at elite sports. So really, when I say elite, is somebody who eventually kind of gets the chance to play at a professional level to get paid for it. We tend to look at that almost as a luck of the draw, um, which I think is a really incorrect way of looking at it because it's not really that. Um, you guys have experienced this yourself. When an athlete makes it to the highest level of the game, um, it's because that athlete has dedicated their entire life uh, more often than not to achieving this. Obviously there are other components, right? Am I genetically gifted? Do do I get certain opportunities? Yes. But above above all else, it's just that support and creating that opportunity. So uh, look, in my experience, I've had athletes of all talent levels kind of, kind of get, get to high levels of the game, but I want to kind of, kind of close off with sharing a, a brief story here. Um, Bill knows him. Caro uh, was a, a, an athlete that I had played for one of my youth teams. Um, one of the best human beings I've ever been around. Absolutely. Uh, but Caro, and he, he, he would say this himself, is probably also one of the least athletically gifted people you will <laughs> ever see. Uh, he's yeah. a big kid, all right? He's, he's, he's tall and he's strong, but in terms, you're not going to look at him and he's not an athletically gifted guy. But what what's the moral of the story here? Carl probably really hits all the marks of what you want in a top human, just a good human being, comes from a great family. And he, he got to the highest level of college soccer. He went and he played at a top Big Ten school, got a chance to play uh, in a Final Four in his first year, right? And really, this past season, decided to step away from the game. And I, I got a chance to catch up with him re- really recently. And this is this is really kind of the moral of the story here. The beauty is that Carl probably would have had a chance to keep on scaling the levels of the game. And it's not because of his, his innate talent. It's really about mm-hmm. his work ethic and desire and how much he dedicated his life, but also because nobody 
definitely nobody at his home ever told him that it wasn't possible. And I don't think definitely from us, Bill, or anybody at GF, he ever heard that either. So the moral of, my, of the story is that I think if we support athletes more, and it, it's another profession, most of them won't get to it. But if we create a positive enough experience, obviously those that make it will continue to have great success. But those who don't, right, those who don't, will walk away from the game at some point, but they'll walk away from the game with such a deep love and such a respect for the game that those are the people that are really going to carry this game into the future. And that is really that is really how I envision us as a country completely changing the culture. It's with guys like Carl. It's with the Danas, Bill. It's with your daughter because yeah. when she steps away from the game, she's never really going to step away from the game fully. She'll have her own kids someday. She'll be playing with them. She, she will be a woman taking her daughters to soccer games. Think of just that paradigm right. shift right there alone. So really, I mean, we're, we're having more and more people every day do what I do. The more we have knowledge, the more we give opportunities. My hope is that we have more people like Cara, more people like Dana that probably don't end up playing at the highest level. They could have, but more importantly, they have the knowledge and they have the love that they will now pass on. I can't even, uh, I can't even imagine what Dana's daughters and sons are going to be like Carl's. It'll be a pleasure to work with kids like that because not only will they have all the support and knowledge at home, but now you'll be working with kids that just only see opportunities. They don't see anything but opportunities. And that's what I hope for the future of soccer in this country. I'll add one thing onto what you just said there, because that's very well said. And one of the things is that I know all these individuals you're talking about. Obviously, my daughter, I, I coached uh, uh, Azali as well, uh, Caro. <clears throat> one of the things that they're going to take with them is the values that were instilled in them and the work ethic and the attention to detail required to play at those levels. And to per it's basically a skill set applied to sport that will be applied to life, work, business, and everything else. That's why when we have these conversations, it's not really, it maybe seems like it's about sport. And, and it's this, this conversation has not been about soccer. It's been about how you know people can now take these life lessons and live their lives that way as well. And I, I think you know the, the things I learned as a as a you know sp a sprinter in college, the coaches that I interacted with that instilled certain values in me are now things that I have passed forward to players that you and I have interacted with, and uh, and certainly my children, and 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 they'll pass to theirs. So I appreciate you mentioning that, um, Sammy. As we wrap up. Um, any final thoughts uh, here before we close? Yeah, I, I have a really important thought to share to kind of close it off. Um, I've shared a lot of kind of my stories of where I am as a coach now and my great relationships, not only with my athletes, but with my colleagues like yourself. Uh, and now I get to meet Chris. But the reality is that I wasn't always that coach. Um, if I look at the profile of a modern coach, there was definitely at a time uh, where I didn't meet those standards. And I started coaching when I was 18 years old. Um, and if I'm honest with myself, I would, I would have to say some of those kids had really negative experiences with me. Um, right. But that's really, that's my final thought is that as a coach, I think my biggest growth 
is just the ability to reflect and be honest with myself. And uh, I'm not happy of those things. Uh, I, I can't say those kids probably have extremely positive things to say, but I did change. And I have now, I think, hopefully impacted a lot of lives and have great relationships with most of my athletes, I would say. Um, and I think that's that for me is probably the biggest lesson. Um, I wasn't born like this. Uh, I've definitely worked really hard to improve as a person and as a professional. And I think it's it's well within anyone's capabilities. Well said. Chris, any final thoughts? Um only that uh, I mean I loved uh, his final thoughts because I think you know too often whether it be you know an athlete that that feels like hey I wasn't born with the right genetic code uh, or like I said a coach that you know had some shortfalls early in their career I mean a lot of it is about uh, you know just uh, con- you know continuous self improvement and um, you know you, you can you're not going to fail if you, if you never quit working at it, you know, whether that's being an athlete or a coach or in life. So I appreciate all the, you know, the lessons that you've shared with us and I hope uh, our audience appreciates it as well. Thanks. Thanks, Absolutely. Uh, Sammy, thank you, Geraldo. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your coaching insights, advice to other coaches, players, parents, and leaders. One of the reasons we brought you on is because as a coach, we have this coaching series that we're going to be doing. You know, coaches can share wisdom that aren't just specifically related to sport, and they help guide us and help us grow as human beings. There's so many life lessons that they can impart through sport. I think this is an awesome start to this series, and I hope that if anyone is listening to the WFO Life podcast and, you know, applies this to sports, to business, to their leadership, uh, you know, or their, you know, their careers, uh, please share um, your comments with us. Uh, we'd love to hear that, love to hear feedback and uh, start that conversation inside of the WFO Life uh, podcast tribe within the Future Focus Health Network. So we're going to put links to that in our show notes, um, and we're going to uh, hopefully maybe put a, some kind of contact information for Sammy in case anybody wants to contact him. Uh, but again, thanks again, Sammy, and uh, we'll call it a night. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.